Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Although I'm not here every week, um, just kind of every time that Pastor, Gabe's, Pastor Gabe asked me to preach, I'm just kind of each time working through this um, section in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And uh, so far, we've considered verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And uh, this morning, this has been over, you know, with over, over the last year or so, as I've come here and there. And uh, this morning, we're going to be zeroing in on verses 7 through 10. And so I'll read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we ask for your help, especially this passage that is dense, theologically dense. Lord, we ask for your help to understand it. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, that we might be captivated by the glory of what you are doing and what you will do in and through the person of your Son. Lord, help us to be caught up into this great work of redemption, that we would be caught up in the glory of what you have done, and that you would help us not just to know these things, But, Lord, that our hearts would delight in these things, that you, Lord, would give us the spirit of wisdom, of of knowledge and revelation, of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we may know these things not just in a theoretical way, but that these would be realities to us, that you would do this work in our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, so we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7, well, really, it's the the end of verse 7 through verse 10, and as I've mentioned in the previous times that we considered Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul is listing out here the great blessings that God the Father has given to us in the person of his Son, And so in verse 4, he talks about the blessing of election unto holiness. In verse 5, he talks about the blessing of predestination unto adoption as sons, that God has adopted us. And then in verse 7, he talks about the great blessing of redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And now in in these verses, in verses 8 through 10, what Paul is doing is he's kind of stepping back and he's giving us a panoramic perspective of what, what, and he's really answering the question, why? Why has God 
done all of this? Unto what end has God done all of this? What, why, what is God up to in redemption? What is he up to in the gospel? And he answers that big overarching question, why? And, and so I titled the sermon, The End for Which God Redeemed the World. I, I, it's kind of a hat tip to Jonathan Edwards who wrote the treatise, The End for Which God Created the World. Um, and so this is all about God. What is, God, what is God's ultimate purpose in redemption? And what I hope that you see and what I hope that I see and, you know, that, that, that the Lord helps us to see in this passage is, is that we as redeemed people are part of something much larger than ourselves. That God in Christ has, as some theologians have said it, have said it that God has cosmic purposes in the gospel, in redemption. That he's not out just to save you and just to save me. and That's part of it. But he's, he's doing things that are on a scale much larger than we tend to think. And so this morning I, I've broken this sermon up under three headings. First, we're going to consider the consistency of God's ultimate purpose in redemption. Then we're going to see the revelation of God's ultimate purpose and redemption. And lastly, the content of God's ultimate purpose and redemption. So we're considering here, what is God up to in redemption? So first, we're going to consider the consistency of God's ultimate purpose in redemption. And you see this in the, at the end of verse 7, in the beginning of verse 7, he says that God has redeemed us in Christ through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, and he did this according to the riches of his grace. And then he says in verse 8 that God lavished his grace upon us, and then notice these words, in all wisdom and insight. God lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. In other words, God did not lavish his grace upon us haphazardly, thoughtlessly, carelessly. He lavished his grace upon us in, in a way that manifests his infinite wisdom and insight. The word insight can also be translated as prudence, and uh, one commentator says that this word literally refers to the psychological faculty of thoughtful planning. So you think of someone who exercises prudence with their finances. They are, they are thoughtful. They plan and they plan and they, they, they have a, they're, they're careful with their, with their finances and they have a plan and they enact that plan to fulfill whatever their purpose is, right? So, God has an ultimate purpose in redemption. And so, he does not dispense his grace. He does not redeem in a haphazard manner. He redeems in a way that manifests his infinite wisdom and prudence. 
he, he redeems us and he lavishes his grace upon us in such a way that serves his ultimate purpose. We can call this gospel logic. That God does not just redeem us, he redeems us in a certain way. He does not just lavish his grace upon us, he, rede- he lavishes it upon us in a certain way. Namely, in a way that furthers his ultimate purpose in redemption. And so, Paul here is like me. Well, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, I was, and I'm sure that you parents can know exactly what I'm talking about, I was the one child who always asked the question, why? And some of your kids are always saying, why? Why? Why is the sky blue? Why are birds able to stand on you know, power lines without being electrocuted? Why, why, why do we sleep? Why does it rain? Why, 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 why? Right? Um, and I was that kid. My brothers asked the question why, but I was the king of asking why. And, um, and my parents loved it. But um, that, not really. But, um, <laughs> but that's what Paul's here is, is why? why. Why the cross? Why, why the incarnation? Why the crown of thorns? Why, why the nail, nails in his hands and his feet? Why, why, why my salvation? Why your salvation? What Ultimately, what is God up to in all of this? What is he aiming at? Well, he's aiming at something. He's aiming at something. He has an ultimate purpose. And his ultimate purpose, and this may be unsettling to us, his, it's not that God is, it's not that our individual salvation, if, if you were to ask the average Christian, what is God ultimately up to in the gospel? They would say, he, ultimately, he's up to saving me, right? And that's not entirely wrong. It's just incomplete. Yes, God is up to saving you, but what is he up to in saving you? Yes, your salvation is a part of God's ultimate purpose, but it, your salvation, if you can think of it this way, is one little tile in a vast mosaic made up of millions upon millions upon millions of tiles. Your salvation, my salvation, yes, that is part of God's purpose, but, it's, but it, it, it's, his purpose goes far beyond just your individual salvation. God is up to your salvation, but he's up to more than just your salvation. And what what Paul is getting at is that question of what is his ultimate purpose? And so you can think of all of what God is doing. It's kind of like there's all these moving parts. And and there's all it's like a jigsaw puzzle and all these pieces to the puzzle and all of these moving parts and all that God does, it's aiming in the same direction. In all wisdom and insight, he, he, he saves in a way that manifests his infinite wisdom so that all of his acts and of redemption are pointing in the exact same direction, fulfilling this ultimate purpose. And so Paul speaks about this same thing in the book of Romans, you think of Romans chapter 11, where 
You know, after Paul has laid forth this gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, at the end of it all, and he talks in chapter 11 about how there is a partial hardening on the Jews so that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. And what is Paul's response to the to God's plan of redemption. In chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, Paul's response to God's purpose and plan in a, of redemption is he says this. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Right? He, he sings praises he's he's filled with wonder and awe at the wisdom of God not not just a, in that what God has done but how he's done it he's done it in a way that manifests his infinite wisdom oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So God has not just redeemed you and me. He has redeemed us in a way that manifests his infinite wisdom and insight. Second, we see the revelation of God's ultimate purpose. Look at what Paul says. He goes on in verse 9. And he says, he has, lavished his gra- his, he has lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So he has made known to us the mystery of his will. The word will here communicates the idea of what God's intention, his purpose. And he speaks about God's will as a mystery that God has made known. The mystery of his will. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his ultimate, what is God's ultimate intention in salvation, in redemption? And God has made his ultimate intention known to us. But he refers to it in this passage as a mystery. And so why does Paul speak of God's ultimate will, his ultimate purpose, as a mystery? What does it mean that it's a mystery? Well, many people think when they hear the word mystery, what do do most people think of? They think of maybe some sort of a Buddhist monk, right, who's sitting in Indian Indian style on the floor in a dark candlelit room with incense burning and he's emptying his mind and as it were letting go and letting God so that he can fall into some sort of a dreamlike state and receive some sort of a vision vivid imagery or maybe cryptic language those are the deep mysteries right (laughs) so 
Paul here is speaking of the mystery of God's will, but mystery, that's not what mystery refers to in the Bible. It's not some super spiritual vision that you get when you empty your mind. It's almost that some people would, would tend to think that a mystery is something that, that you, you need to almost kind of like empty the mind so that God can reveal something to you apart from the mind. Go directly to the soul. And that's where you get the deep hidden mysteries of God. Right. Well, don't say right. Uh, wrong. Correct. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, that's wrong. But a mystery in the Bible is not some fuzzy, cryptic, hidden thing. A mystery is something that you cannot know unless God reveals it to you. It's something about God that you cannot know unless God makes it known. So, you know, in the Bible, it's very clear from Romans chapter 1 that there's a lot that we can know about God by looking at his creation. We can know that God exists. We can infer that God exists, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-wise. We also have the conscience that God has made us in his image, and we know right and wrong. We know that murder and stealing and lying is wrong, and you don't need to look to the Bible to know that because God has created you in his image, and you just you know you're made in his image, and so you know inherently that lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, and this is sort of a, a universal principle throughout uh, all cultures. Uh, we know what is right and wrong, but we can't know everything about God from nature. Some things we need what theologians call special revelation to know. Special revelation is things what we know it from God in the Bible. Some things we cannot know unless God tells us. We can't know that God is triune just by looking at the cosmos. We can't know that, that, that Jesus Christ was both fully man and fully God by looking at a leaf. You need the Bible. If you are to know this, you God must tell you, or you can't know it. You can't reason your way to it, not because it contradicts reason, but because it's above and transcends your ability to reason. We need God to tell us so much about himself in order for us to know it. And that's why we have the scriptures. The scriptures are the, the word of God. And this is where he tells us things that we would not otherwise know about him things that we cannot infer about him from the created order with the use of our unaided mind. And so what is God's ultimate purpose? What is his intention? What is his will? What is God aiming at in redemption? Well, you can't know that apart from the scriptures. It's a mystery. The mystery of his will. Right? Now, obviously, now, now some people will take this and they'll say, oh yeah, 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 that's, that's found in the Bible. But many people think, uh, especially in the charismatic movement, they, they would think that, but, but the goal of finding the mysteries of God in the Bible is 
is not to focus on the plain meaning of the text. It's to, to, find, to read between the lines and look for the deeper, hidden, underlying meaning. And so there's, uh, there was actually back in the 1980s and 90s, there were a series of books about what was referred to as the Bible Code. And <clears throat> the whole goal was to find the... <clears throat> sorry. Is this good or has it been drank before? Okay. So the whole goal of the Bible code is to find hidden meanings within the text. The goal is not to look at the plain meaning of what God has said in his word, but to to find hidden underlying meanings. And this is where the mysteries of God are. If you want to know the deep stuff, I mean the really deep, deep stuff. The true spiritual mysteries of God. You gotta look beneath the text. And so what they did was they, they said that basically you would take uh, passages from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible, and you would take every fifth letter and you would extract out every fifth letter or, or every seventh letter or every twelfth letter. You would extract it out and you would take every fifth letter from a passage, you would extract it out, and you would put these letters together, and usually you would get nonsense, (laughs) but sometimes you'd get actual words. It's just random, right? And they would say that, for instance, one author argued from Deuteronomy, that Deuteronomy, the the hidden mystery of God, this riddle, if you want to know the deep stuff, is that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you take every 13th word and every 22nd word, and you put them together, you get the word Hitler, Auschwitz, and Holocaust. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses, I can't remember what the exact verses were, but if you take every... And, and so they say, this is really what God, this is the deep things. That he's here revealing things he's going to do in the future. And you do this by bypassing the plain meaning of the text and looking for something beneath the text. And that is nonsense. That is nonsense. And some in the charismatic movement do the same thing where they take the Bible and they, yes, they read and they, they, they meditate on the, on the content of God's word, but the goal is not to, to figure out what God is saying in plain language, but to find some deeper spiritual, mysterious sort of a meaning. But that's not the case. That's not how you do it. God has revealed his mysteries in the Bible in plain language. And the Spirit of God carried the prophets along Right, And they wrote in plain language. The Spirit inspired the plain language of the Scriptures. And God makes his mysteries known through the plain meaning of the text. This, this doesn't... This doesn't and so, so you want to know what God's ultimate intention is? What, is? what the mystery of his will is? Read the Bible... And focus on the plain meaning of the text. That's how you figure it out. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't need the help of the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Just as Paul says uh, later in, uh, I believe it's in verse 17. 
He prays for the Ephesians. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the reality of what God has done for you in Christ. So we need the spirit. But the spirit does not speak in some sort of a, some sort of a, in riddles. He, speak, he speaks in the plain meaning of the text. And the role of the Spirit is to open our eyes to the glory and the weightiness and the reality of what is clearly communicated in the Scriptures. But Paul says, and this is a blessing, that God, in verse 8, has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is God? So this is, this is a big question that many people don't know how to answer. And it's the question, why did God make all of this? What is he up to in all of this? Well, we know from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, that we don't have to say, I don't know. We do know. God has revealed it to us. He has revealed, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. He's revealed it to us in the scriptures. And the scriptures that, were in, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he goes on to say, so, so let, me, let me backtrack. Do you want to know what God is ultimately up to in the gospel? It's not, it's a mystery in the sense that you cannot know it apart from God revealing it to you. But it's not a mystery in the sense that you can't know it. You can know it by committing yourself to a life of a life lived in the word of God seeking the knowledge of God God tells us what he's up to in redemption well he says in verse 8 he says sorry in verse 9 he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to and is this, this will is according to his purpose. Now, I, I do prefer the, the, the New American Standard or the, uh, the LSB or the NASB, which says that it's according to his good pleasure. Because really, when he, said, when he speaks about the mystery of God's will, he's there speaking about God's intention, his purpose. And when he says that it's according to his good pleasure, he's speaking about the fact that God has done all that he has done. He has decreed what he has decreed because it delighted him to do so. He did it freely. That God has, re- has purposed all that he's purposed. He has intended all that he has intended. He has willed all that he has willed, not because he has to, but he did it freely because it delighted him to do so. So, He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And then speaking about this will and purpose, he says, which he set forth in Christ. So God enacted this will. God enacted his eternal counsel, his eternal purpose. He has enacted it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's eternal purpose was, effect, was put into effect in time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says that he's, let's just read it again. He says he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth. He, he affected it. He set it in motion in Christ. And then he says as a plan in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. And so here, and so the, this idea of the fullness of time is that, that God has, has this eternal purpose, this ultimate purpose for which he's done everything, but he's taken this purpose and this will and he's put it into effect at a particular moment in time. God has not just determined what he's going to do, he's determined the precise timing in which he's going to do it. He's done it in the fullness of time. And so Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 4, that Jesus was born of a virgin in the fullness of time. What does that mean? It's, he, he came at the exact time that the Father had determined. That there was a, this eternal purpose that God effected at a particular moment in history. God's eternal purposes coming to fruition at this particular moment in history. And God did it at his appointed time and in his determined way. And you can imagine being a Jew... This is the Christmas season, right? So we can talk about the birth of Christ. We can talk about it whenever we want, right? But, but it's especially appropriate to talk about it now. You can imagine the Jews feeling abandoned by God because he was silent for 400 years. Why did he wait so long? Well, Christ was born at just the right time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. In the fullness of times, the time which the Father had determined was the exact right time. We could say the same about the death of Christ. He lived 33 years, and Jesus was always talking about the hour. My hour has not yet come. Speaking of the time of his death. My hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to, to fulfill the purpose for which I was sent to this world, which was to die. It had, my hour's not yet come. God, has not, God did not just determine to send Christ to die for us. He sent him to die for us in a, in a precise manner and at, the, at an exact time. And then when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples in Mark 14... The Roman soldiers with Judas come. Jesus says, my hour has come. The betrayer is at hand. It's time. God's appointed time has come. And we could say the same thing about the second coming. That Christ is coming again. When? Well, we can say this for sure. At the appointed time. At, in the fullness of times, at the exact moment that the Father has determined. Not one minute too, not one nanosecond too soon, not one nanosecond too late. God enacts his eternal purposes in time, 
And he has not just determined what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, but he's also determined the exact time that he's going to do it. Which is really encouraging because it's been 2,000 years. (laughs) And it feels like he's kind of taking his time. Doesn't it? You look at all, the, all that's going on in the world right now and you just go, oh my goodness, for crying out loud, God, why don't you just come and get it over with, right? And, and he's, everything is going to plan. Everything. He has fixed the day. He has fixed the hour. And he's going to come at, in the fullness of times. The exact moment that he has determined in eternity past, he's going to affect that plan, that purpose, at the particular time he has determined. So, we now get to the third heading, which is the content of God's ultimate purpose. We get to the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> So, you know, this whole time we've been talking about everything about God's ultimate purpose, but we haven't actually stated what this purpose is. <laughs> Let's get there, man, right? What is he up to? What is God up to in all of this? Why did he save you? Why did he save me? Why the, why the, the virgin birth, why the incarnation, why the death, why the cross, why the crown of thorns, why the resurrection, what is he aiming at, what is his goal, what is his ultimate intention that he, he is pursuing according to his good pleasure, what is he up to, well Paul tells us, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of, the, of, the, of time. And here it is. This is what he's aiming at. To unite all things in him that is in Christ. To unite or to gather up or to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is what he's aiming at. This is why he saved you. To unite all things in Christ. To gather up all things in Christ. So that Christ would become all in all. That's what he's up to in the gospel. He's up to the glory of Christ. That Christ would be preeminent in all things. That Christ would be First, you think about how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that every knee, now notice how this fits with what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1. He says that he unites all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, right? And what is Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2? He says, That every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This is God's ultimate purpose. It is to unite and to gather up all things in Christ so that Christ might be, have first place in all things. Things in heaven and things on earth. The uniting of all things. And we know that sin has caused a separation. Things are not united. Sin has caused a separation between us and God. It's caused a separation between heaven and earth. And God sent Christ to undo all of that and to restore what had been broken and lost in the fall. So, what are some things that have been united in Christ? I want to go over four things that have been gathered up in Christ or united in Christ. First of all, sinners are reconciled to God in Christ. Man was separated from God in the garden when man rebelled against God. And man was kicked out of the garden where God dwelt in the garden. They walked with God in the cool of the day. Man had communion with God and Because of man's sin, man is now banished from God's presence. There is enmity between God. There is hostility between God and men. But we know from Colossians chapter 1 that God has reconciled God and man. It's through Christ that God has reconciled himself to us. Which reconciliation means that the enmity is no longer there. Man and God are now brought into full communion again through Christ. We are united to God through Christ. The uniting of things in heaven and things on earth. Not only are we united to God, we we learned from verse 4, that, that not only are we no longer hostile to God, we are actually, not, no, no longer is he hostile toward us because of our sin, but we are actually brought into his family, and he calls us sons and daughters of God. He calls us his sons and daughters. No more hostility. And it's all in and through and by the person of Christ. It's united We are united with God in Christ. The second thing that has been united or brought together in Christ is Jews and Gentiles. And this is Paul's, I would say, the the most, uh, it's the dimension that Paul is emphasizing most clearly in Ephesians, is that Jews and Gentiles, there's hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and God in Christ has brought Jews and Gentiles together in one body. We are brought together. We are united together in 
Christ. And so Paul says, and this is kind of a lengthy quote, so kind of listen up. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. In other words, he's taking Jew and Gentile, he's making one new man. They're now Jew and Gentile are united in Christ. So making peace and might reconcile us both, both who's the both referred to? Both Jew and Gentile. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And he goes on in chapter 4. And he talks about how there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So God is uniting not just himself with sinners, humans, but he's uniting in Christ humans with each other. So that we are one in Christ. We have a common faith, a common baptism, a common Lord, a common Savior, a common, the one spirit that fills you fills me. The one spirit that fills the African Christian fills the Asian Christian. So that we are brought into one body the body of Christ, the uniting of God and man, the uniting of sinners with each other in in the body of Christ. Then we have third, the uniting of heaven and earth itself. When, When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God pronounced a curse on man and he pronounced a curse on woman. The, the curse on woman was pain in childbirth and this terrible broken relationship between man and woman that she would, his desire, her desire would be for him and he would rule over her. And, but the curse that God brought on Adam, brought on man, God cursed man by cursing cursing the ground so that it would not bear its fruit in its season. Or it's not exactly what it says. So that it would produce thorns and thistles. 
so that man's labor would become back-breaking labor. God did not just curse man. The created order itself is cursed. It's under the curse of God because of man's sin. So man will plant in the ground and there will be drought and there will be the opposite of drought, flooding. There will be thorns and thistles. There will be pests. That's why we get pesticides. And we... We, we kind of think of pesticides, yeah, that's just something that, that the world has. No, it's not just something that the world has. It's something that the world has had for the last couple decades. It's a big deal. Pests are a big deal. Insects. There's wind that knocks the crops over. So you toil and you toil by the sweat of your brow. You will eat all the days of your life. That's what God tells Adam in Genesis 3. He's cursed the ground. And you, you look at our, our earth and you look at our world. The created order is broken. It's broken. That's why there's death. We know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. The created order is under the curse of God. And what is God doing in the gospel? Yes, he's saving individuals, but he's, he is undoing the effects of the fall. That is the ultimate purpose. This is part of the ultimate purpose. This is the uniting of all things. The uniting of heaven and earth. And you see this in, do you not, in in Revelation chapter 21, where we see, I believe it's 21, maybe 22, I think it's 21, where, where the, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and descends onto the earth. The uniting of heaven and earth. A world that is characterized by death, and decay. What happens if you don't keep up your house? Decay. The world is broken. And we humans are broken. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, The creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. You hear that? The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
It's the uniting of heaven and earth that God is going to set the creation itself free from its corruption. The creation groans. And it longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's in the pains of childbirth. And one day the creation itself will be set free. It will work as God intended it to work. You know, this makes me think of, since it is the Christmas season, right? Joy to the world. You know, the third verse of joy to the world. That Christ came to undo the radical effects of the fall. We sing his praises for that. And the third verse says, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Well, when Christ returns, it's going to be... (laughs) Our bodies and the earth is not going to fight against us. We're going to be able to go for a hike in the in the mountains without being afraid of being bitten by a rattlesnake. <laughs> well, the last thing that is united in Christ is you got sinners are united to God, sinners are united with each other, heaven and earth are united, and then angels and believers are united, will be united in worship of the one Christ. Now, most of this, we are waiting for it, aren't we? We get glimpses of it, foretastes of it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we have this wonderful communion with our Lord and Savior, Christ. But we wait the majority of this stuff. Angels and Believers will be united in worship of the one Christ. Heaven and earth will come together. And some people stray away from this because it seems speculative, and I just say it's not speculative because God says stuff about it. Paul in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about how we no longer come to Mount Sinai, which is, you know, filled with dread, but now we come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. We will join the angels, and the angels will join us in worship of Christ. Of course, the most important passage, and just hear this from Revelation chapter 5, angels and the saints worshiping Christ together where John says then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, 
and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That gets me excited. The, the uniting of sinners, forgiven or saints, believers, sinners saved by grace, and angels lifting up. You just think myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels, together with the myriads upon myriads. I don't know how many people are going to be in that company, but we know it's going to be a great multitude, more than any man can count, more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the universe, that we will join our voices with theirs and sing with one accord the glory of Christ. This is God's ultimate purpose in redemption. It's more than just you and your individual salvation. God has cosmic purposes in the gospel. To unite all things in Christ for his glory. So let me, let me just close real quick, and I'll be quick. Just some application. Because I know this has been a lot of Content. It's kind of a thick, intricate passage. So you're saying, well, how does this affect me in my, in my daily life? I just have four things. I'll be very quick. And I know four things doesn't sound like very quick, but it is. Um, the first thing is this. Don't focus all of your energy just on your individual salvation, where God's redemptive purposes are collide with you. You should focus on that. You should focus a lot on that. (laughs) A whole lot on that. (laughs) But don't become so narrow-minded that you miss the forest for the trees. You are part of something much larger than your individual salvation. God, what God is up to in Christ is so expansive. And you are part of that. Your individual salvation is part of that. But with Paul, take a step back and get the panoramic perspective. Second application would be this. Be encouraged by what awaits you. Be encouraged. I don't know about you, but over the last several months, as this world continues to careen out of control, um... It's been a little depressing. I've felt, I think for the first time in my life, that sense of I want to go home. I want to go home. I wish things were the way they used to be. And I know that most of you probably can resonate with that. Not just with what's going on internationally. Yes, that too. In Ukraine and um, Israel. But here in America, I mean, what on earth is happening? And there is a sense of this truly is not my home. And there is a 
a groaning associated with that. I just want things to go back to the way that they were when everything made sense. Because it doesn't make sense right now. And let me just encourage you to consider what's ahead of you. Look at what's ahead of you. Look at what God is up to in the gospel. You are part of something, and I, we are part of something. This co- the cosmic purposes of God in the gospel. Your brightest days are ahead of you. We have so much to look forward to as Christians. What God is up to. And we will one day be home. And it will never not be home. (laughs) Third thing is check your desires. What is God's ultimate purpose? It's to unite all things in Christ for his glory. Does that delight your heart? The thought of Christ, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Does that give you, does does that excite your heart? The thought of, of Christ receiving the glory due his name. Does it excite you to think about joining with the angels in worship of our Savior. Do you long for the things that God longs for? Are you excited about things that excite the heart of God? Pray that God would give you, that he would get your desires in line with his. And lastly, worship Christ. This is the end for which God redeemed the world, is the glory of Christ. And if that's the end for which he redeemed the world, that's the business we need to be about now. We can do that now. Worship him with all that you are and all that you have. In everything that you think and say and do at home, at church, at the DNV, at the supermarket, with your kids and with your friends, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, all that you think and say and do, do it all for the glory of Christ. Because that's what we were created to do, and that is the ultimate end for which God redeemed the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have roped us in to this great and glorious purpose. Lord, who are we that we can be part of this? The uniting of all things in Christ. Lord, we long for that day. We long for that day when we will with the angels sing your praises in glory. When the curse will have been removed fully and finally. Help us, we pray, to live our lives for your glory. 
in all that we do. And we pray it all in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen.